0: Why do birders love Tallahassee, Florida so much? Simple. Because so many beautiful birds love Tallahassee too. Located on two migratory pathways, Florida's capital city is one of the top birding locations in the country. And with nearly a dozen sites on the Great Florida Birding and Wildlife Trail, you can't turn around without spotting another life bird to check off your list. And once you put your binoculars down for the day, Tallahassee's world-class culinary scene and comfortable accommodations will have you rested and ready to do it all over again. Learn more at visittallahassee.com. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is the end of September. So if you're keeping track, that means it is time for this month in birding. We'll jump right into that panel discussion. But first I do want to, you know, offer a reminder, if you enjoy chatting about bird identification, you can join my ABA colleague, Greg Niece and me every other week on the ABA's social media feeds for what's this bird live. I don't know that I've ever really promoted it much here. There, there's a little bit of overlap between people who who listen to the podcast and people who watch What's This Bird live. Anyway, um, you might know that the ABA maintains a couple Facebook discussion groups, one of which is sort of a crowdsourced bird identification community. It's called What's This Bird? Uh, Greg and I pop on there every two weeks to chat about some of the more interesting identification questions that get posed there. Uh, we'll be on this week. That will be September 30th if you listen to this podcast on the day that it is released. Uh, we go live at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 Central. Check it out if you like this week. We'd love to see you there. To the T-Mib panel this month in birding, it's old friends Jody Alaire, Jenny Duberstein, and Sean Milnes back again to talk Hawaiian honeycreepers, vultures, and how to answer the question, what is your favorite bird? All that after this week's Redbirds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of September 2022. It has been an absolutely bonkers week in Western Alaska. I suggested last time that it might be in the wake of the remnants of Typhoon Murbach, and that certainly came to pass. It's hard to keep track of everything that has been seen uh, there this week, but I'll try to hit some of the highlights. We'll start at Gamble on St. Lawrence Island, where the ABA's first ever record of Ictorine warbler was seen this week. This is a bird not on many radars for North America, as it is primarily an Eastern Europe breeder, and it winters in sub-Saharan Africa. It is a somewhat regular and much-enjoyed vagrant to the UK, where they are known as ickies. And this icky apparently went over the top of the globe, splat, onto St. Lawrence Island, where it was well-photographed by local birder Rodney Unguluk. What a great bird. That was not all. On Shamaya Island, in the western Aleutians, the storm brought the ABA area's third red-backed shrike. Well, three and a half, if you count the mystery hybrid strike from California many years ago, as well as the ABA's eighth record of the critically endangered yellow-breasted bunting, a bird whose population has fallen off a cliff in the last couple decades. So any modern record is is absolutely huge. St. Paul Island was also inundated with exceptional birds, including Middendorf's grasshopper warbler, and more notably, not one, but two Eurasian hoopoe the third and fourth records for the ABA area. The last one was on a boat in the Chukchi Sea, so the last land record was in 1975. One of the birds was living, the other found dead, left by a local on top of an outdoor refrigerator, and now on its way to the bird collections in Fairbanks. And on the mainland, the first record of pintailed snipe away from Attu and the Bering Sea was photographed at Seward, suggesting that it's not just the islands that are seeing an incredible influx of rare birds this week. And that wasn't even the only storm to bring rare birds on the other side of the continent. Hurricane Fiona made landfall in the Canadian Maritimes, leading to a number of noteworthy findings, including whitetail tropic bird in Nova Scotia, among other southern terns and gulls. Those are the highlights of a very busy week. But for a full recounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. I can't believe it's the end of September already. Uh, One of the things that you realize doing a weekly podcast is that these weeks absolutely (laughs) fly by. uh, And here we are, almost October, wild. Uh, Anyway, to help me talk birds this month and to commiserate, of course, about the inexorable passage of time, if we want to get philosophical, <laughs> uh, it's the September this month inverting panel. We've got some friends returning again. I just found out before we uh, we started recording, we realized that this combination, this four person panel, has been in this uh, in this entity in this uh, before uh, in August of 2020. So it's 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 a fun opportunity to have everybody back again and uh, talk some birds again. Clearly, we didn't get it all out uh, then. Um, I'm 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 thrilled to have you all back. Uh, I hope listeners are too. In reverse alphabetical order, uh, he is one of the hosts of Foul Mouths, currently in hiatus. No, no judgment there. Uh, it is <laughs> it
1: is our friend from Connecticut, Sean Milnes. Sean, it's great to have you back. It's great to be back. It's been a while. Good it's to see been a minute Yeah,
0: for sure. Um, and she's a mentor to so many young birders, a conservationist with Sonoran Joint Venture, and an Arizona birder. It's Jenny Duberstein. Hi, Jenny.
2: Hello. It's great to be back.
0: Oh, and you sound fantastic on that brand new microphone that John sent over to you. Thanks, Amazing. John. Dulcet tones of Jenny Duberstein and uh, one of our good friends from Birds Canada, the director of community engagement. And by that I mean an advocate for birding community and birding engagement from Alberta, Jody Alaire. Welcome back, Jody.
3: Hey, great to be back. Good to see you all again.
0: Yeah, and, and I assume that your Septembers have been appropriately birdy. Uh, mine certainly has. Uh, I'm interested in what you've seen, but I want I want to tweak it a little bit in a, a sort of self-serving way that will become more obvious here in a bit. Um, it is related to a piece of bird news, though. Uh, eBird came out recently with a new way to display populations of exotic birds, the bird population definition of exotic. That differentiates where they are native and where they are introduced. So, my question to you to lead off is Have you seen any interesting introduced birds lately? And it doesn't have to be just in September. You can go back as far as you need to to have an interesting introduced bird sighting. Uh, But I have some and I'm saving it. I'll save it a little bit.
1: I'm in the country now. We don't see too much for exotic Hmm. released or anything i drove by a muscovy duck the other day i thought i laughed (laughs) at that uh always just laugh at them uh i think think like well, I mean we have monk parakeets and those are amazing to watch and they've been they get you know they get shooed off of their like uh, electric electric box nests and things like that and so they've been they're not as like i guess concentrated as they once were in their old places but man they used to be so rad to watch them in their giant freaking communities Uh, yeah like in in our parks Yeah. yeah massive in new haven connecticut there was like it was huge these giant communities and there was this one bald eagle that would roost on the top of the tree where they all would be so that got real raucous at times and things like that That was always super fun <laughs> that's quite a combination because bald eagles are known for having enormous nests
0: as well you think like the combination of a monk parakeet uh bald eagle nest with like the monk parakeets is like the tenement apartments and the bald eagle on the on the penthouse would be kind of an interesting combination it was like
1: right off the one of the, the west river i think it is and yeah so they're the the eagles i'm sure were nesting like right over probably over the, the river at some point but they pr- they it seemed the one seemed to prefer this one tall like oak that the parakeets had chosen as like it's, it's it's like daily daily vantage for the city or whatever it was <laughs> so uh i think
3: in alberta it's you know we've got a few introduced species yeah. but i i think the one that i actually really associate with with southern alberta is eurasian collared dove
0: um, oh, yeah how recently do you associate that with southern alberta i don't know the past decade
3: you yeah know, it, right it's, it's actually a pretty common pretty common bird out here and uh for the first time they they nested in our manitoba maple um mm-hmm. like right in the yard this year which is which is pretty cool um they're really neat and one of the things that they've sort of done out here which is fascinating is that they've displaced the morning doves out to the hmm. countryside so like these if you're in a suburb of uh, Calgary, Edmonton, or, or you're in like a smaller town, it's usually the collared doves that are in the, the towns and the, and they push hmm. the morning doves out. And as soon as you get out of town and more rural, it's that's where the morning doves are, which is which is kind of interesting. And has changed since, you know, the time I, I lived here previously. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Eurasian collared dove. They're, they're, they're always around. They're quite fascinating. Quite fascinating birds to watch.
2: I was, I, I mean, my backyard is full of house sparrows. Um, <laughs> but it's an interesting mix, you know, like there's a abert's toey family and there's curve thrashers and lesser goldfinches, and vermilion flycatchers and Gila woodpeckers. And then, um, a pair of Eurasian collar doves and 12 gazillion house sparrows. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Sounds about right. That's an awesome yard list, by the way. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. That's not bad. Actually. There's Holy several cow. birds that I would be very excited about. Yeah. I, um. I I was in Panama earlier this month. I'm not going to talk about Panama though. I was I had a very long layover in Miami on the way back, so I hooked up with um, Mark Kramer and Eliana Ardila of the Birding by Bus. They live in Miami, and we went out and actually looked for the exotic Miami birds. And so we spent like three or four hours driving around <laughs> the suburbs of you know Southwest Miami uh, looking for them. And we ended up with like ten species. We counted ten species of introduced birds. Uh, oh, okay. That includes like rock pigeon and Starling and right. House Sparrow, but also um, the, we saw the Bulbals, the red-whiskered Bulbals, mm. which are really cool. Super and, cool birds. Um, yeah, super localized too. I'm surprised that population hasn't winked out, but it's been going, I don't know if it's been going strong, but it's been going for like <laughs> as long as I've been a birder, a very long time. Um, yellow Chevroned parakeet was, in, was a life bird for me, which was really cool. Um, at a golf, co- at a golf course <laughs> in Miami. So we rolled up with like our scopes and our binoculars and all this stuff and walked down the golf paths with all these, you know, Miami golfers done up, um, they're staring at us as we're walking by and, you know, you hear this scream that is unmistakably a parrot scream. And then you walk over and you stare up in the tree until you can find them. And they're really hard to find in those trees, cause they're the same shape and uh, color of <laughs> the leaves. Um, but a lot of, a lot of really cool stuff. Um. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see how eBird manages all this stuff. It's They made the the ranges for the introduced birds bright bright orange and the ranges for the regular birds, the regular purple. But yeah, I'm glad to add some data points to that in Miami and get a few new birds <laughs> besides.
2: <laughs> this is kind of unrelated, but the Institute for Bird Populations, I just discovered this like three mm-hmm. weeks ago. On their social media, they've been posting these quizzes Well, they'll put a range map right the, yeah and
1: then you have that. to sort of guess what it is based on the range yeah, map it's a good quiz it's kind of fun yeah oh, i have to check that out
3: that's cool i i think i think a lot of people you know if know that Hawaii, a lot of hawaiian birds are in trouble and have, and have heard about the plight of of especially hawaiian honey creepers um and and i don't know if there's you know still a lack of awareness or, or maybe even, you know, fatigue of the issue, but I really think it's, it's one of the single biggest conservation issues that we're looking at in the world. And certainly, you know, from, uh, from a perspective of losing unique and just amazing birds, uh, that have evolved in Hawaii, it's, it's a really, it is quite a catastrophe Mm -hmm. and, uh, so, yeah, so I'm really I'm laying down the gauntlet. This is quite depressing. But I think there's also hope in this story. So, I think I'm, I'm going to try to balance that out. Um, on September 2nd, there was an individual, uh, Aki Kiki, which is one of the endangered honey creepers that lives on the island of Kauai, primarily or only in the Alakai swamp uh, region, so the sort of high mountain region in, in Kauai. Akikiki is part of a suite of birds on Kauai that are really in trouble and whose populations have declined dramatically because of avian malaria and the onset of mosquitoes into these higher elevation uh, forested mountains, which used to be a refuge for a lot of these birds. So, in addition to Akikiki, there's the Akake'e, um, there is the Ani um, Ani and, uh, and there's this thrush, the Pu'aiohi. All that live in this region and are and they're uh, quite rare to begin with, and now with avian malaria and mosquitoes now quite prevalent in these you know high forests, um, we're now at the point where it's it's really gone from. And I think I'll use the quote from um, uh, from Doctor uh, Callie or Doctor Lisa Crampton of the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project. There was a group of researchers in here have been monitoring these birds for years um i've had the opportunity to spend time at, at these in these places with with cali and, and some of the field crew and, and i've been lucky enough to see many of these birds including akikiki um so it's extra extra poignant this this struggle really really hits home for me and uh, and i think her quote of you know before we were working on recovery of these species but now the time is here for us to prevent extinction. and and that's and the, it's really upsetting actually that that's the switch that's been triggered uh, mm-hmm. because of this. And so I think for a lot of people, maybe they're now realizing what kind of state it is in um, that these birds are facing with the story of carrot. And carrot was a male uh, Akikiki. There were several little populations within the Alakai swamp. Overall, there's probably less than 40 wild, uh Akikiki left. This one field site, the uh the, the field site used to have the most robust population of Akikiki. It was like 70 birds in in 2015 and you know now there it's, it's less than 5. Um they uh they went into the site to try to capture a couple birds, uh Carrot who's a long standing male in this population and he's a He's been a breeder for many years and one of his uh, offspring Abby they weren't able to catch Abby they were able to catch carrot and they immediately uh, transferred carrot to a facility in Maui where where the remaining Akikiki are in captivity and it's about 37 birds now And for some people you know they might think well why do this like why not just let them why can't we support them in the wild? But the, the challenge is now that mosquitoes are so prevalent in these higher slopes. And, and there's a few reasons for that. And I think the big one, which I think is probably going to be a bit of a theme today, is, is climate change. You know, climate change has made it warmer and warmer on these Hawaiian islands. And that's pushed up the malaria line. So the, the line mm-hmm. on these forested slopes where mosquitoes can successfully breed. It's no longer too cold uh, or too damp or too remote. In the the Alakai swamp for mosquitoes. And this has really changed like rapidly in a few years. This isn't necessarily been a slow, steady thing. It's been all of a sudden the switch was was, was hit. And now we're at the point where it's actually just too dangerous if we just leave these birds, if the Qui Forest Bird Recovery Project and its various partners, and there's tons, American Bird Conservancy, US Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, the San Diego Zoo. There's tons of partners involved, and and I'm, I won't be able to remember all of them. But if these uh, these birds are just left in this area, they're not going to survive. Um, they're just going to get wiped out. That's it. You know. So they're trying to remove these birds, put them in a captive facility, um, and then from there, there is actually a plan in place to introduce. And and I know Nate, like you've had Callie on the show before, mm-hmm. and she's talked about this. Um, but just for those who maybe are not familiar, that the plan is to introduce mosquito birth control into the environment up there. And I should, for those who don't know, like mosquitoes are not a native uh, animal to, to Hawaii. Um, so these birds ha- have not adapted any kind of immunity to avian malaria what, whatsoever. Mosquitoes are not native. So much is not native in in Hawaii. And so, what they're going to do is they're going to use an actual naturally occurring bacteria called Wolbachia, and they're going to um, insert that bacteria into male mosquitoes. Now, male mosquitoes don't bite and don't carry disease, right? So, um, and they're they're going to release these male mosquitoes with the uh, malaria, uh, with the mosquito birth control, the Wolbachia birth control, into the environment. They will breed with the female mosquitoes, and it'll actually make them unable to lay eggs. Hopefully it'll actually drive down the population or maybe completely wipe out the population. And it is going to happen. It's going to take two to three years for it to really yeah. happen. And that's the challenge. So if they don't act now and and try to catch these birds and bring them in captivity, those birds won't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is it is doom and gloom for sure. And I think Akikiki is getting the brunt of it for sure. Like we're really at risk of losing Akikiki. They're They're slated to be extinct in the wild in 2023. It really is kind of a catastrophic thing that's happening and I wish more people were paying attention and supporting and donating and doing whatever they can to try to help this. But at the same time, I think there's some hope here um, and hopefully fingers crossed that this plan this plan will work.
0: Yeah, I, I think the most sobering thing for me, and this is probably just my naivete, um, you know, I I sort of thought of this this mosquito birth control plan as sort of like, oh, maybe it's just the optimist in me. I was like, yeah, this is this is going to work. Uh, you know, it's going to drive those populations down. We're going to we're going to wipe out these mosquitoes. This is a great thing, and it is a great thing. But you know, the reality is, it 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 takes time. It's not an immediate thing. It takes time to get these mosquitoes into these remote places where these birds are. It takes time for the you know the Wolbachia to do its thing. And um, you know time is time is something we don't have with Akikiki uh, though we might have a little bit of, of you know runway with uh, the other two. but uh, yeah, that, that was sort of the sobering thing for me because I remember that conversation with Callie. And how it was like? Well, you know, we we finally approved this this mosquito thing. This is this is great for these birds, and she's like, well, you know, the reality is the mosquitoes don't go very far. You have to take helicopters and drop them into these very remote places, and that takes a lot of time, and money, and effort. And uh, yeah, it's not it's not the end of the road for sure. Yeah, and I think
3: that I think the other element here is is the climate change factor, right? Mm-hmm. Like
0: it's it's
3: not like the mosquito the Wolbachia solution is is hope like is a fix potentially, but there are other, so many other factors. And I haven't even got mm-hmm. into like invasive pigs and, and right, the, yeah, the problems they call like, yeah. it. just, there's almost too much in Hawaii yeah. and like kudos to the people cats. that are, yeah. that are fighting through that <laughs> negativity to, to actually, you know, really make some positive conservation work no happen. You no know, doubt. it's, it's really impressive for all of them to be, to be doing that. Um, but look, climate change is, is, is not going away. And it's certainly, mm-hmm that is going to continue to cause problems like this, not just in Hawaii, but uh, for other birds and people and for all of us uh, around Mm -hmm. the world.
1: I'm happy to see that, that there are these, these uh, intense recovery efforts being heavily publicized Mm -hmm. because it, it, it's showing the sort of anatomy of a recovery project like this, of these, like something that's so important and in a place that's so Overlooked and taken for granted, you know. I mean, <laughs> I can't think of another place that's uh, part of the United States that's been that uh, taken. I mean, maybe, maybe Puerto Rico. Uh, yeah. Good luck. I mean, so. But uh, again, it's just this is important. People, people get sh- you know get sugar coated with like fun, fun cute animals like red pandas and such. But like when we're flooded with mosquitoes and we have nothing to nothing to eat them or you know, and nothing pollinating anything. It's in a place like that. I, it, I mean, that's whatever I'm preaching to the choir in that respect. I just, it's just important that we're being this, this public and this, uh, I guess, transparent about the processes that, that go behind, uh, conservation efforts and things like that. So I like the doom and gloom. I'm happy to see it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, these, these, these conservationists like Callie and her, her team are, are triaged Doctors effectively like the yeah. ER doctors of the conservation world, and and you know saving what they can when they can. But there's some very sobering decisions that they end up having to make with that regard as well.
2: Big sigh. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. it's kind of a nice segue. I don't know if you have my my topic up next, but it's yeah. just like you know I struggle a lot with. I feel like that story is such a great example of our society in general, certainly in the United States and Canada. And beyond you know we we tend to look to technological fixes to get us out of mm, mm-hmm. whatever the issue is and in this case the technological fix is really important like you know there's 23 individuals did you say jody of this species you know we need to do something right now yeah but the the technology is treating the symptoms but not the cause right you know why are there more mosquitoes <laughs> how can we um make the the changes that we need to to really impact climate change instead of how can we use technology to keep using resources at the same level that we're using them at some researchers in argentina um in august of 2022 published a paper in the journal ecosystem services that um was looking at the the impact of vultures in uh reducing greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. And um, essentially, when vultures eat dead things, and when things die and decompose, they emit greenhouse gases. Um, and when vultures eat them, they reduce the amount of those gases that are being released into the atmosphere. And so they did, I have like three pages of front and back side of the paper notes <laughs> trying to get my head <laughs> around. There are so many numbers and percentages in this paper. I fortunately I had access through my my work to the the actual paper from the journal. So first oh, nice. I read you know sort of like the the press release synopsis that was published I think in Scientific American and then I read the the actual paper. So I had to first of all remind myself okay a kilogram is 2.2 pounds, a metric ton is the same thing as a ton, that's about 2200 pounds and then they got into like some Things are in metric tons, and some things are in teragrams, and so oh, it's not even f- for our teragram. listener. <laughs>
0: even Jody shakes teragram- head. The metric system in Canada.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a teragram is one million metric tons. I think. Okay, listeners, please let me know if my math is correct. Ton,
0: but um, <laughs> far be it for me to.
2: Anyway, vultures. You know, a vulture eats somewhere between. You know in the vicinity of a pound to a couple of pounds of dead stuff every day. And if there's a global population, they looked, I think, at 22 different species of vultures around the world, estimating 134 to 140 million individuals. Um, They mitigate the release of three to about 60 teragrams, or maybe it's metric tons,
0: this it's is a where lot. I got confused. It's a lot. Of something. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. a lot.
2: <laughs> they they um teragrams, three to sixty point seven uh, million teragrams of greenhouse gases every year, and so to put this into perspective, because I am nothing if not a science communications person, these are like big numbers. You're like, what does this mean? This is the equivalent of the these are two thousand and one numbers, but the total U.S. emissions produced by boats and ships, um, 46% of the U.S. emissions produced by commercial aircraft in 2001. Wow. That's how much vultures are eating. Um, uh, about 13% of the 2005 numbers of emissions of um, agriculture, livestock, poultry, um, crop production. Um, 15% of livestock related emissions in Pakistan based on 2014 numbers. Um, Here's a better one. Remember those big fires in Australia in 2019, Mm -hmm. 2020? Vultures reduce greenhouse gases um, in the equivalent of about 7.5% of the emissions of just that one, one fire, that gigantic fire incident. So it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And so the the other thing that was fascinating is that ninety six percent of this mitigation comes from our new world vultures. So black vultures, turkey vultures, and yellow headed yeah. vultures. Yeah. It's wow. fascinating. I assume they mean
0: both yellow headed vultures, considering there's greater and lesser. Yes.
2: They they only King vultures, where you
0: at? Not not getting it. But I yeah. guess there's way more black turkey and yellow headed vultures than there are any other vultures, so it makes sense. But ninety six percent is a lot.
2: Yeah. It's a ton, <laughs> of, right? And I just yeah. had one of my coworkers, I really quickly was sending him messages. Hey, go check the Partners in Flight Avian Conservation Assessment Database and tell me what is the population trend for black vulture and turkey vulture. And it's actually slightly increasing.
0: I was going to say, if it's anything like they are around where I live, they are increasing. There are a lot of black vultures and turkey vultures. There are more black vultures than turkey vultures around here.
2: Yeah. I think turkey vultures are actually increasing at a at a higher rate than, than black Fantastic. vultures. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. But the flip side of that is everything that's going on in India and Asia, um, Mm -hmm. where vulture populations are or have declined, you know, in some cases, 99.9%. I jotted down one statistic, the white rumped vulture in India, its population has decreased by almost 100% um, between 1992 and 2007. Um, for a variety of reasons, you know, um, one of the things is this use of um, this drug that's used to, it's like a non-steroid anti-inflammatory for cattle, mm-hmm. um, and it causes renal failure in vultures. And so if an animal dies and then the vultures feed on the carcass, then the vultures died. Good news is that drug has been banned in in certain countries, um, in Nepal, in India, and I think in Pakistan. Um, mm. The bad news is it takes a long time for it to really get out of the the environment so it's still impacting vultures yeah um but sort of the big take-home message vultures have a big impact like vultures in and of themselves they are not going to be the solution to the reduction in greenhouse gases that we need to see we need to let's see i wrote this down every year globally there are 36.7 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide released um and so we're talking about this is like the the teragrams versus metric tons part started to make my eyes go crossed a little bit here (laughs) but i was like okay so six 60.7 million teragrams how does that relate to billions of metric tons and i didn't have time to figure that math out yet somebody will write it and tell you i'm sure
0: yeah it's a lot though it's a big number
2: it's 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 not insignificant Let's yeah. say it that way. Um, and so the take-home messages are: let's conserve vultures, <laughs> um, and let's not. We can't look to vultures. Vultures are not going to be the answer to getting us out of climate change. And and kind of what I was saying in response to to Jody's story that we can't look just to technology to save us. We actually have to look at. You know, our whole <laughs> economic model and structure and the yeah. way, you know, who is actually paying the price for the way that we live and how can we reduce our consumption, not just as individuals, but, you know, as as countries and as corporations and um, how we need to we need fundamental shift in the way that we live, as well as more vultures.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. One, you know, I rem- I'm remember i glad you mentioned that um, India, the. Whatever the drug that they use in the in the cattle, I remember reading about that many years ago and being you know quite disheartened by the uh, population decline of uh, of the white rump vultures, the Indian vultures there, and and I'm, I hadn't heard that they had banned it. I know that I, last I remember having this information in front of me, it was like they were talking about banning it, but they hadn't done it yet. Um, so I'm glad to hear that they have. And fingers crossed that it's the sort of response uh, to a banning of a pesticide that we saw with the uh, populations of birds in North America with the banning of DDT. Um, you know, given that enormous pressure off their back, you now hopefully these birds can can recover in a in a quick way. I mean, when you think about how low the populations of osprey and bald eagle were um, not all that long ago, 50, 60 years ago. And then now look at them. I think, you know, all, every bird can see that out there at their window in many cases. Um,
2: yeah, <laughs> the, the drug, just for anybody who's interested, it's called diclofenac. That's right. Doc, yeah. It's, I, I was reading about it just a little bit. Um, I went down a real wormhole. I was like, Oh, I need to, like, Google, <laughs> that, I need to Google that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it said India, Pakistan and, uh, Nepal had all banned it um, I think in 2007, like it's been a while, um, since it was banned, but you know, other things like there's hunting, some of these species have pieces and parts that are, um, culturally important or, or used in, in black market trade. There is much in the way that raptors deal with this. You know, there's a lot of, um, misinformation, um,
1: thoughts Mm -hmm. about
2: the impact, like they're going to carry off small children or they're killing our animals, things like that. And so there's just hunting, not for any particular purpose other than to make fewer of them.
0: Yeah. And I know that's an issue in in sub-Saharan Africa where, um, you know, poachers will actively kill vultures because they frequently, you know, they'll lead law enforcement to the poachers kill. And so that's that's a problem that, you know, banning a drug is not going to solve. That's a bigger frequently an economic uh problem because there are certain incentives to doing that sort of thing that you gotta you gotta deal with but um you no know, i I am excited that vultures are play such a big role um another reason to love vultures for sure
3: i I don't think vultures get enough love I think vultures no, I are amazing you know i like we have um usually a good roost here in along the river you get about thirty or forty turkey vultures, which is probably the highest. <laughs> you know, proportion of the Alberta population is like right here because uh, they're really expanding. And, and I, you know, spend lots of time, like we're looking at them. We've got a couple wing tag birds I always try to get. And, and I've had conversations with people say, Hey, what are you looking yeah. at? And I'm like, yeah, turkey vultures. And they're like, Oh, like they're so hideous. And I'm like, no way. Like they're amazing. Like th- I think they're really cool looking. I, I still think vultures get enough love. That's a cool looking bird. And like, to be real, right? Like if you had your head stuck inside like a rotting carcass, like you wouldn't want feathers all over your face either. Oh, right. Yeah, like it would just be harder to clean. Whenever, it's a I very practical appearance. You know, it's very practical. You know, I, I, I totally get it. You know, it makes, it makes sense. Like really,
0: it's funny because vultures are probably the one species that I have the most interactions with non-birding, you know, the parents mm. of my fr- kids' friends, <laughs> yeah. uh, because there's a big cell phone tower near right near where I live, I and it's just towers. always covered in black and turkey vultures, mostly black vultures. And people will take photos of them while they're waiting at the intersection and send them to me. It's like, what are these things? I'm like, oh, you found the black vultures.
3: I, I think I'm glad. <laughs> like, it's great that our vultures are doing well, but certainly in, in like you mentioned the sub-Saharan Africa population, mm-hmm. like those populations are in big trouble, right? Like yeah, they're, and, it, and it's, and it's a different cause of decline, right? Yeah. Than, than the, than the declephanic. Um, and, uh, and a lot of them are in big, big trouble. I know birdlife and nature Kenya and a lot of partners and champions of the flyway, like, of flyway uh, yep. a couple of years ago. And we raised a bunch of money for that. Vultures need more love. And if people see, you know, that vultures actually are massive contributors to the ecosystem. They and, and I think, you know, we knew they were anyway, but this sort of added level that, you know, they could be keeping, and, and there's so many stats here at Jenny, like it's crazy the the number of stats they put into this, but <laughs> I think the one I liked the most was, you know, at least vultures in the Americas, keep it's about 12 million metric tons of, of CO2 out of the environment in the Americas. Like that's yeah. not insignificant. That is, that is, the uh, I guess the analogy is that that's like taking 2.6 million cars off the road every year. Yeah, that that's how much CO2 is is reduced, and that's that's a st- I was actually quite astounded at how high that number
0: was.
2: Yeah, and you know another thing that that was in the paper: vulture population declines have led to a 30% reduction in their capacity to to mitigate greenhouse gas so emissions compounds. Yeah. yeah.
0: Another another bit of vulture fact to put in your back pocket for when you're leading a trip and someone's like, oh, another vulture? Yeah. Like, well, but wait, <laughs>
2: <laughs> listen, I have had the opportunity over the last 10 or so years to collaborate with researchers from Hawk Mountain Sanctuary who yeah. do a lot of vulture work. And in particular, I've been part of their new world vulture project, which you can Google. And we've been trapping, um, turkey vultures. They have do it all over the place. I've been working with them in Arizona and putting satellite transmitters on them to nice. learn about their populations and where they go. And I, I honestly never thought that much about turkey vultures one way or the other. I did not not like them, but they were turkey vultures. And now that I've had the opportunity to see them close up and really think about them and study them, this paper makes me appreciate them even more. Jody, I could not agree with you more. They are gorgeous. They are so beautiful. They've got these gorgeous hazel eyes. I didn't realize that they actually can change the red. The brightness of the red on their head when they're really excited or agitated, it gets pumped full of blood and color, and it's like bright pink and red. And then when they're scared, it gets very pale, like it can turn almost you know a very light pink color. The warts that they have on their head are unique, <laughs> and you can identify individuals like based on the. It's it's fascinating in sort of like a, a tantalizingly disgusting sort of way. They're amazing.
1: The young ones have those fuzzy heads. They're they're like they're black yeah. he- fuzzy heads, and they up close are like you just want to hug them they're actually like (laughs) actually a cute stage of life I yeah yeah they (laughs) don't (laughs) hug turkey vultures (laughs) don't actually do that but yes they look there and they're so there was one at the um the common cuckoo stakeout in rhode island Uh, okay yeah the heck that was but uh there was one young one just following people around like poking at their feet and like pecking at their uh at their at their 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 tripods and stuff like that it was so funny he was just just linked to people's ankles the whole time. Absolutely adorable. And did not vomit on me. So I was pretty happy Very about nice. that too. Right. <laughs> of the vulture, Sean Mills. Yeah. So for those
2: who don't know, vultures, in addition to like sticking their heads in dead things and eating them, they uh, cool themselves by defecating on their legs. So they go to the bathroom all over themselves. And uh, the defense mechanism is to projectile vomit on whatever is attacking them and so especially if you're trapping vultures and you have there's you know you wear gloves and have to sort of be careful <laughs> about which direction you, you there's hold not them. much
1: that can save you from the smell of rotting meat though <laughs> no, but
2: true. you know what i'll tell you what they were a lot less smelly and disgusting in the hand than i would have thought given how they spend their time they're kind of <laughs> remarkably clean relatively speaking for what they do i was i was sort of shocked but i will wrap it up by saying this um this to me points to the need for conservation social science Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: to recognize that um we can count vultures and monitor their population declines until there are no vultures left but if we aren't trying to understand human behavior and work uh to change human behavior then um we're just going to watch those numbers continue to circle around the drain.
1: Like a Go conservation, social science, circling around
2: exactly a dead animal. Yes, nice, <laughs> Nate. Very nice. <laughs> wow. Yeah,
1: the visuals.
0: Yeah, I know. Right, a lot of visuals in this one.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a. It's an article. The, uh, it was in BBC and it's titled Colorful Songbirds Could Be Traded to Extinction. Um, I think we might have, I don't know if I've talked about this with you, Nate, or if I talked about this on Foulmouth potentially a long time ago, but there was um, an article about people smuggling birds from Cuba to. Um, to oh, florida i have
0: a story about that about my recent trip to uh florida yeah. but I'll, I'll save that I'll,
1: and so anybody that's familiar with that will be you know can jump into this and understand completely like right off the bat this the the, the article is talking about asia and indonesia specifically and they're talking like J- jakarta and things like that but um so they're, they're they're it's the songbird trade in asia uh it's a long-standing traditions to have like singing competitions and things like that and and folks collect these brightly colored breeding you know breeding males and things like that to status symbols and 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 stuff and they're in different different regions for different reasons and all of that Um, you know I'm not I'm terrible I don't know why you have me on this I'm so bad at uh, talking about the things that I've read (laughs) but um what it gets me mad I get mad about things so quickly um so but they're saying that the the there's a chance to see major decline in, in the colorful ones, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to start to see, uh, birds evolving into drabber, uh, versions of themselves because the ones that are being taken from the wild are brightly colored, mm-hmm. um, you know, yellow and sky blue and whites and things like that. Those, those colors specifically, obviously there's a chance to wipe out populations it's an interesting uh look to see what will go extinct and what might evolve itself into a better position uh naturally but what we're what they're really talking about what i thought was really important about this was that they're talking about taking like time like little pieces of of the population bringing them into uh into captivity and breeding them for the songbird trade you know they can isolate certain traits and breeding and things like that to, to create these ultra pet shop versions of, of the ones that are, are being pulled from the wild. You're going to save these, like the, their at their natural state. And for me, this, what struck, what really struck home and I'm really wide, it ties in for me from Jenny, what Jenny said, you know, we're talking about tradition that, we as Westerners are writing about, you know, us in the US and in England are are writing about these traditions from a place that we really don't know too much about. And, and if we do, we're just there to exploit them for, for coffee or, or, you know, a warm tropical vacation or something like that, or even for ecotourism. It's hard for, it's hard for, for me to look at something like this and make a judgment about the people that are doing the collecting. So well, and, but but the natural instinct is to also be like, well, why would we put these things into captivity? They don't belong in captivity. But like we can't judge other people, you know, for a tradition like we have our own. I mean, we don't we need vultures for a very good reason. We can't stop slaughtering domestic animals to consume. Right. Like we have in the West, we have our own traditions, <laughs> whatever they might be. Uh, and and so I, I think for me, like the songbird trade in general is this is a really hard thing for me to look at because we're really we're really looking at cultural distinctions that mm-hmm. we don't really have room to judge and we do need to find better ways to daggers of conservation eyes like at places like like in Jakarta or something like that when when we don't really understand what's going on we do need to be better at fostering a, a, a that conversation i think outside mm-hmm. of what we're doing here in the united states and and things like that i don't know I, you know i i'm not in the conservation world i'm i'm a person i stand on the outside and read these articles with a very you know very limited scope of understanding, or I, you know, I call, I call somebody and ask or send an email and ask, Hey, what the heck does this mean? So, uh, you know, like we were saying, it's important to be super, super transparent about this kind of stuff. And this article was really short, but in the, sh- in that short, short span, they really, they're just like, look, <laughs> this is cultural and we, we, we need to we need to find ways to like work with people that are that are actively taking part of like the songbird trade or whatever. There's an easy way to work with them. Right. There mm-hmm. has to be or maybe not easy. That's a dumb word. Easy. But uh, there there is a way to, more productive, more maybe. productive way to work yeah. with communities. We see it in, you know, we're we're making use of the of it in Colombia and places with these amazing, you know, eco lodges and stuff like that. We, we should be ought to be able to bring that into the, the more public sphere, you know, into like townships and things like that. I think it's, you know, it's, it's gotta happen. So
0: yeah, it was, I think a lot of North American birders are sort of less aware of the whole songbird trade thing than maybe we should be. Um, you know, it's always one of those things that's talked about it with hush hush tones whenever some really, really weird thing shows up in like Texas or Florida or, or Arizona or California or whatever. It's like, Oh, how did it get here? Um, I, I think it's bigger than people realize. I, I was going to say, like, I experienced a little bit of it when I was in Florida. We were at this park with, I was birding with Mark and Eliana and we were looking for parrots around and they're like, oh yeah, you know, sometimes um, the Cubans come here and they have uh, singing competitions with cage birds and it's a, you know, it's a big deal. And I was like, well, that's uh, all right, that's not it. Kind of interesting. I wonder if we'll see that. And we we totally did. Like we we were walking down this trail and there was a little gazebo over there where these um, two men were sitting there and all like hanging all around the gazebo were these birds in cages. And I was like, well, I, I wonder what they have. And so I put my scope on them and I was looking in there and there was like a Cuban bullfinch and a yellow faced grass quit and um I think like a black black-headed grass quit, you know, basically birds that people I have the songs of. And I don't know it's it was just kind of weird to see that like right in front of me this thing that I'd heard about for so long. Um, You know, why, why people, you know, kind of look with a side eye at some of these birds when they show up in these places. Um, I don't know what the solution is. I I really don't, I don't, really don't know. It's um, as you say, Sean, it's a, it's a cultural thing and those sorts of things are really hard to fight. I mean, just look at the bird trapping around the Mediterranean. It's, that's a hard, that's a similar sort of thing.
2: I think part of it is, is, (laughs) <laughs> we're quick to rush to judgment from our positions yeah. of privilege, right? It's really no easy job. to look and say, that's bad. You need to stop doing that. Right. And it's a lot harder to understand why, why people are doing the things that they do and to recognize, mm-hmm. you know, we we use terms like ecosystem services and we have academic journals <laughs> named ecosystem services and yeah. we don't spend as much time thinking about things like cultural significance and religious significance and, and, it's harder to you can't put a dollar value on that in the way that no. you can you know measure the metric tons of carbon that are not released because of vultures, and so that makes it challenging. But I think I think we are quick to re- rush to judgment. I think to bring it back to I think what I was commenting on for Jody's story, I think we need to recognize the role of capitalism <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and the global market in um, in the black market in driving sort of the financial incentives um, and exactly. the lack of financial opportunities and to bring it back to climate change, <laughs> the communities that are impacted the heaviest by the the actions of the communities who are impacted the least. And, you know, the things that you have to do to be able to eat and survive and live. Yeah, we, we need to open our eyes.
0: Uh, people don't necessarily always do these things because they, I don't know, because they... Uh, what I, what I mean to say is that there's usually a very pragmatic reason for a lot of these a lot of these things and you know if you don't if you're not approaching this you're just being entirely moralistic about it then you're never going to reach you're never going to reach people where they are you're never gonna solve the problem in a way that really solves the problem rather than just putting a band-aid on it or pushing it even deeper underground
3: uh, yeah I think the only thing I'll add here is is uh and I did find another Article that was sort of summarizing this this paper somewhere when I was digging around and 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 one of the one of the points that was mentioned in this article I thought sort of worth raising here is uh, like the loss of colorful species you know and, and the decline of the aesthetic value of of you know the birds in a, in a region um, and it you know mentioned this point that a lot of conservation efforts are quite often um, uh, linked and motivated by beautiful looking, aesthetically pleasing birds. Right. And if we're losing those c- components of the ecosystem, it actually mm-hmm. could make conservation more difficult in, yeah. in places. If, you know, saving a lot of bright yellow and blue birds or bald eagles or peregrine falcons, you know, that's a lot easier to get support for rather than, you know, things like Aki Kiki, you know, mm-hmm. which is uh, gray, brown, white, pale bill beautiful little thing but it's not it's not an EEV, you know it's not like there's bright colorful things that people you know less uh you know less visually appealing although i could argue but um so there's that element as well and i think the other thing is i think you're totally right like we different places you know different cultures different ways of doing things and i think i think but there's still an issue here obviously right there's still a conservation issue that needs to be dealt with and i think certainly looking at and working with or supporting the, the bird life partners or the bird conservation organizations within these countries, you know, Mm -hmm. certainly those people have, have understand the, you know, what needs to be done and, and understand this, you know, the culture a little bit more. And I think that's, that's probably the way forward. And it's, it's interesting that it didn't really address any of that. I certainly would like to hear from some of the bird life partners in some of these places about what they're doing on the ground and, and, And in terms of education efforts, but uh, yeah, it's it's anyway. It was a very interesting. It was a very interesting article, and certainly lots to think about. And I think you're right, Nate. I think it's. I think people don't realize how big, you know, the the illegal and imported bird trade. Surprising to me, yeah. It is is way bigger than we realize.
2: I do a lot of work in Northwest Mexico, and this is probably 20 years ago now, close to 20 years ago. Um, We were collaborating with. Um, an agency that I still collaborate with, they do great work. I'm not going to name them because I feel like this effort was so misguided. <laughs> one of the things that they were trying to do was help people diversify their income in an effort to, um, support conservation, great effort. like it happens all over the place. Like it's a good idea at, at the surface level. But one of the things that they were promoting, they were going out and handing out these little pocket guides, beautiful artwork pocket guides to birds that you could collect for the cage bird trade and yeah right it was basically <laughs> wow. a menu it was a menu <laughs> yeah and it was like a nice little field guide if you were looking at it you're like this is a cool field guide and then you look at the title of it and you're like what am i holding oh, in no. my hands yeah oh. and so it like it reminds me of <clears throat> you know here in the sonoran desert buffalo grass is a big issue it's this introduced uh, grass species that fills in beneath the saguaros and then creates a real issue because it burns a lot in a system that is not adapted for it. And just south of the border, there are programs to uh, plant grass for cattle <laughs> as forage, <laughs> like cold hardy grass. And so it's just, it's sort of one of these things where the, the thing that's driving people to do that, like it's a good incentive. We want to help right. ranchers. We want to help rural residents find new ways of, of making money but it's just if you think about it just in the vacuum of wherever you are and not the bigger broader impacts of what you're doing um it becomes problematic yeah
0: let's move on to the question of the month while we're still here this is not a uh a, a article specific it is not a um season specifics kind of a general birding question that I wanted to pose to you three since you've been in the birding community for a long time um I don't know about you but I get this question all the time especially from non-birders who uh, are well-intentioned when they find out that I'm a birder or I work in the birding industry they'll say oh well you're you're a bird watcher what's your favorite bird and um I don't know about you. I, I never know exactly how to answer that because, uh, you know, people say it's like choosing your favorite child or, or whatever. But it's a really hard question. It depends on time to time uh, on the on the situation, I suppose. But what do you say when someone asks you, what is your favorite bird?
1: My co-worker um, actually 20 minutes before I left work to come <laughs> re- record he walked in into the shop and 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 was like hey you know i know you might not be able to answer this question but um, what's your Listen favorite again. bird and i literally was like are you serious i actually just started <laughs> dying laughing at him because i was like i like I'm, I'm actively thinking about this question. anyway, <laughs> he just walked in right away. It was like right after I read read it initially That's too. Funny. So it was just the perfect opportunity to tell him that I had no idea. I have no <laughs> way to answer that question. And what I often do when I when people ask me that, I just laugh at him. Like, do you have like a like are you ever able to pick a favorite anything when anybody asks you it's like what's your favorite song i don't know what day is it like yes. what what time of the year is it what um what book am i looking at <laughs> yep. I, I find i like separate into genera and i sort of try and talk to people about like warblers like or right. whatever like oh you know canada warbler i mean it's my favorite warbler but there's also like my favorite sparrow and there's <laughs> an ox and there's like there it just keeps going yeah. if i think i sometimes i'll just answer like do you know how many bird species there are in the world <laughs> right i just yeah. want you to think about the whole world and how many <laughs> yes. birds do you think you, that you see everywhere so like yeah. things like that i like to pose the uh, throw the question back at them if i have if i can because you know it's like it, it's impossible to answer that
2: i have two answers i mean my my First answer, especially if it's somebody that I don't really know or that um, I guess is kind of new to birding, is just to say whichever bird I'm looking at right now, right? Yeah, is my favorite bird. But Classic I
0: cop out, Jenny. Well, <laughs> so
2: it is a cop out, but I actually do have a favorite bird, and it's I'm wearing it around my neck right now. It's a violet green swallow, which yeah, I just love. That's
0: a good one. Nice. It's my favorite bird, and I can't nice. explain
2: why. I, I love how it looks. I've studied them in the past. I was just in Cape May last weekend and I decided that the gray catbird is a very close second.
0: Gra- I always That's like nice. to see a gray catbird. Gray catbird always makes me happy. Yeah. I found that you can't be too obscure with your favorite bird because then you end up having to explain it to the yeah. person. You not only do you have to come up with a bird, but you have to explain the bird to the person you're talking to. So it's good to come up with something that maybe they've run into and mm-hmm. catbird is a good one for that.
3: I, this it's really funny. This, this is a question you get a lot, right? And I think All it's I think it's followed closely by Have you seen the movie The Big Year? Um, <laughs>
0: yes. Well, that's that's a much easier question than mine. Much yeah. easier. Yes, I have
3: um, uh, a lot actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so favorite bird is tough, right? I think it's yeah. tough for everyone. And I don't know too many birders, at least in my like circle of friends that are birders that that can say, yeah, it's this one bird, and. And so I always try to find a cop-out and, and I think the cop-out is like, like, you know, I've got a few different favorites and, and, you know, I think, you know, golden Eagles on my short list and, you know, American castro is my spark bird. So there's always a place. And, And although my short list is totally disingenuous because it's it's like, there's not a cap limit to my short list. The short list is just like a list, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) cool, cool October, you know, late September mornings. You know, even last night I was thinking, Ooh, Northern sawwood owls. Like this is like perfect Northern sawwood owl (laughs) migration. It's like, I love Northern sawwood owls at this certain time of year. And, and, you know, connect looking for Connecticut warbler on, On fall migration a perfect example of a bird that you can't talk about to a non-birder because it's like there's so many things to explain you know right um uh, are they in Connecticut it's like well I'm sure they do come through there yeah um (laughs) maybe next in a while a little bit (laughs) I think (laughs) for me (laughs) for me the thing is it's like there's not the singular favorite because I think you know like like Jenny there's a bunch of birds I've worked on like I've done work on Uh, Louisiana water thrushes for years and I love them and bald eagles for years and I love them for different reasons and you just can't give like a proper I can't give a proper answer you know if I'm being pushed I'll often say golden eagle um, because it was as a kid that really captured it but I think the challenge for us I would say is that as birders at least maybe for me is that you build relationships with birds over time right and when you're a kid right it was like you know black and white warbler, just obsessed, and, you know, and as you get older and you start working on birds or, or you spend time with birds and you have these experiences like getting to see kiwis in New Zealand, you it, it, like all these experiences I've had, I, I have so many favorites because it's, and it's not so much favorites is that you've built these relationships over time with so many different birds. And I think that's why it's so difficult for us. Um, and especially if you just love birds and love birding all the time, like I think it's, it's it's sort of not a cop out Jenny's answer of, of like, you know, whatever you're looking at right now. It's 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 kind of your favorite. I don't think it's true that's true all the time, but uh, I don't know, it is it is a very tough one for sure and I feel like I bet we all just spin our wheels every time we answer this. It'd be
0: Yeah. Pretty you know, much. Yeah. 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 So I actually I actually tried to sit down and think about this mm. question like in a really yeah, and you know, I really not so much of a surface level, which is how I usually approach it whenever someone asks me um, and just think about like a bird that always makes me really happy to see it and a bird that I'm always like really excited to see. And that, yeah. well, even though it's kind of common, like it makes, you know, a birding outing really, um, you know, enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And I and I came to the conclusion that that bird for me was yellow-breasted chat. Huh. Like nice. I see them often enough that I really get to enjoy them, but like not so often that they ever get kind of old. And whenever yeah. I see a yellow-breasted chat, I'm like, oh yeah, that that's a great bird. You know, it's kind of sneaky, it kind of hides, but when you get to see one hanging, you know, getting high and singing, that's really cool. And they get a funky flap thing. That's always a real you know pleasure mm-hmm. to see. Um, so that, that's what I came to. If I had to like come up with a, an answer, you know, life or death, that would be my one, but yeah, it's um, it's hard to come up with one. It's hard to come up with just one bird. That's I why ran I asked it for you.
1: I did that same thing, Nate, uh, recently. Like, mm-hmm. I don't. I've, somebody asked me, you know, uh, probably last week. But I've been. <laughs> I did run that. Like, I've. Do, I did run that. Like, same thing. And it, yeah. for me, it. It turns out it's like Eastern Phoebe. It's the bird yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes me the happiest when I see them. Mm. The, the tail bobs, and I'm just instantly like a little bit relieved that that they're there for that moment you know and yeah. it's the one i point out to people the most often too that's a good point yeah a, that's a good one yeah. right it sneaks up it snuck up on me recently that i was like i really love eastern phoebes a lot like way <laughs> more than i ever would have given any like given into so yeah it's funny like they the, have that lovely song too i love beautiful. that eastern phoebe it, it, it it's like a spring it's like yeah. oh spring Oh, yeah. It's like Songbirds migration. March, something like late March, early April for me, and I hear the first. Phoebe. I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank <laughs> God it's over. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh,
3: Sean, you probably shouldn't move to Alberta.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was not tough, born for you. Although
0: maybe that that moment of relief is all that more uh, all, that, all that much better because because the winter has been such that it is.
2: I have the opposite thing here in Arizona. When the white-wing doves go away, I'm like, oh, thank God the temperature is going to start to go down. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, there's something to be said for like the everyone everyone marks their first of year, first of season, whatever, but no one ever it's hard to to know the last of season, last of year. Like, this is the last time I'm going to see this bird. Some birds mm. you can tell, but some birds it's like I can never I never know just I guess I never really notice when like the dark eyed juncos finally leave. Right. I, it, I or I never like look at a junco and say that's my last junco of the year. It's just you just look up one day and they're gone
1: broad-winged hawks for us are pretty um well like where i am especially that we're they breed like in my neighborhood and i know i know when the the tides are changing the broad-winged hawk disappears and it's a red-shouldered hawk oh yeah places it and that's an actual in the fall in the spring and fall it's like a a changing of like the breeding season i know what's happening with those two hawk species show back up it's really odd but i've noticed the last couple of years yeah thank you
0: all three of you, Sean, Jody, Jenny, for joining me once again. Um, I'll maybe we'll get all four of us back together in another two years, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll <laughs> the rotation will work such that uh, this is the panel that comes up. It was great to talk to you about all sorts of stuff, even uh, even somewhat sad and sobering news Um, Mm -hmm. but it's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you about birds and uh, i'll put a link to all the stuff we talked about in the show notes, and of course links to the jody and jenny and sean's uh social media so you can follow them there if you like thanks so much hope you have a great rest of the year and we'll uh we'll see you down the road
3: yeah thanks date great having this conversation with all of you great to see you all again
2: likewise good to see y'all
1: yeah this is my favorite for this is my favorite group thanks so much (laughs) (laughs) The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like our magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us. Perhaps the best benefit is the feeling that you are contributing to a greater birding community here and around the world. it's it's probably the magazines they're they're really great you can get information at aba.org slash join special shout out to annette cook of mechanicsville maryland and lisa clem of chevy chase maryland big week for maryland both of whom joined the aba and noted the podcast as their reason for doing so thank you so much annette and lisa welcome to the aba Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who holds out hope that at least the tallest mountains will find themselves free of mosquito-borne diseases, in particular, the Himalayas. Technical production is by John Lowry, who hopes that the effort to release genetically altered mosquitoes is successful and not a vain attempt to fight an imagined problem, you know, a mosquihoti. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz who's disappointed to hear that condors, our largest vultures, barely had the impact on carbon emissions that the more common black and turkey vultures did. One might even say that they're doing the condor minimum. You can find us online at AVA.org and on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association and on Twitter we are at ABA. It's awfully appropriate the turkey vultures offset as much carbon as commercial airlines because unlike the latter, they don't charge extra for carrying. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ava.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll catch you next week.